We are in a series uh, these days called Things That Cannot Be Shaken. And that's a good launching place, so to speak, for us to begin today. So let's take a a time of prayer, then we're going to jump into Scripture, okay? Father in heaven, thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you that you love us with this unconditional love, this everlasting love that you have for us. We're so grateful to you for that. And Lord, I pray that on this day, in these minutes that we get to spend together, that you would be honored among us. I pray also that you would be willing to move in among us and grab hold of us, Lord. We are not able to hold on to you. We need you to hold on to us. And we want you to steer us in your path. We want you to bring us into a place where we can say, in this shaky world, because of my unshakable God, I can live an unshakable life. Lord, we seek you out together in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, today. Amen. So here's the deal. I believe that we live in a shaky world. It doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of convincing probably on my part to you to say, for you to say, yeah, we live in a shaky world. That's, that's just kind of obvious all the way around us, it seems like. And so I'm sort of a headline watcher and watch the news a little bit and make sure I, I'm aware of what's going on. And every time I do that, I get depressed and then I keep doing it anyway. So here's some headlines from this last week. Uh, number one, obviously, David Bowie died at age 69. Another one, ISIS opens new battlefront with Jakarta attacks. Or this one from yesterday, 20 dead in possible terror attack in West Africa. Or Friday's headline, market crash robs $2.3 trillion from investors. Or oil below $30 a barrel. Well, yeah, which you're like, hey, cheap, cheap gas, that, that's good. Not for the good not for good for the people in Texas and stuff, but okay. Or Walmart to shutter 269 stores, which means the loss of thousands of jobs in families like ours. Or this one that I saw this week, traffic already lining up to be late to L.A. Rams opening game. <laughs> Sorry, that was from The Onion, my favorite source of news. We live in a shaky world. And your world is shaky and my world is shaky. And last week we talked about this idea that we love and serve, serve and follow an unshakable God. And that makes all the difference. If you don't know where to start in how to build an unshakable life, it starts here with the idea that there is an unshakable God who loves you, who pursues you, who is after you, and who wants you to be connected to him. That's where it begins. I, uh, I want to read some scriptures for you that help us understand where we're going when we talk about this unshakable life. Uh, we saw last week that God has it. So one of the passages we looked at last week is James chapter 1, verse 17, that says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When everything in your life is... Sh- changing, when everything in your life is unstable, our God does not change like shifting shadows. He is rock solid. He is unshakable. That's true of him. And then he says to us, I want to offer you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I want to offer you a life that cannot be shaken. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, he says this, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. 
And then what's interesting is you walk through Scripture, you find that there are a lot of people already who have lived ahead of us who have found an unshakable life. They found a way to build an unshakable life. So here's what the psalm writer says in Psalm 62, verse 5. He says, Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. I wish, that, I wish that confidence for every one of you. I wish it for me. I, I want that kind of confidence for my children. I want that kind of confidence for my grandson who is coming. I want that for, the, for, for them. I want this for you. I want you to be able to live an unshakable life. And here's a psalm writer who says this, I will not be shaken. And it was all because he was connected to his unshakable God. And that changes everything for us. I have, I have seen friends lose a child. And sometimes my friends who have lost a child find their whole life disintegrates. And I have watched friends lose a child and their life seems to move forward with this rock-solid steadiness to the point where I sometimes wonder if they're faking it. If I, if I wonder sometimes if they're... If they're in denial about what has happened, and yet I watch them go year after year after year, and I realize their life is built on something that is unshakable. And all of us know people in our lives who have lost their marriage or lost their job or lost their home, and sometimes people crumble under that, and sometimes people soar through that. And the difference is some of those people have learned to build their life on a foundation that is unshakable. How do you build an unshakable life? I'm going to look at a story today in the Bible that will tell you that there are people in this world who have learned to live an unshakable life, and they're going to teach us how to build that for ourselves. Their story is unique. It's not like a story that we will live through, but the determination that they had, that the, uh, the choices that they made are choices that every one of us can make in the process of building an unshakable life. So that's where we're heading. Before we look into scripture, uh, let me just start you with this. How do you build an unshakable life? Number one, be at church every week. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of preaching to the choir. Would you like to be the choir? Because you would be awesome. So I'm sort of preaching to the choir. You're here today, but, you know, were you here last week? Are you going to be here? I read an article recently in a Christian magazine that said the average churchgoer goes once a month. And I'm like, well, you're missing out on everything that God has for you when you come together with the family of Christ and you serve together and you worship together and you learn together. There's something about being connected in the family of Christ that matters. And if you want to build an unshakable life, I believe it begins right here. We have classes that we offer. We've got a belong class coming up this Tuesday, and it's all about how do you belong into the community of Christ at his church, in his church. We've got a class coming up in a couple of weeks called the Shape Class. It's all about this idea that God has shaped every single one of us uniquely. And it's interesting, when you think about building an unshakable life, you might think, well, every unshakable life is built the same. That's not true. We are all wired differently. We are all shaped differently. And God uses every one of our experiences and personalities and pains and joys and everything that goes into our life, and He uses that to shape us uniquely. And in that shape class, we're going to talk about what that looks like. Because in all that uniqueness, God invites us into an unshakable life with him. 
So that's where I would begin. Now, the story goes on from there into the scripture. And what I want to do today is read through a story. Some of you have heard it. If you have children that you've raised on Veggie Tales, you've heard this story. I want to give it to you from a little bit different perspective today, more of a grown-up perspective today. Uh, although Veggie Tales is pretty cool, so they tell a good story. Um, if you have your Bible, uh, open up to uh, Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we got some on the chairs near you. If you can take one of those, that's cool. If you have your phone, you can open up your phone to YouVersion. And if you go to YouVersion and then you click to you find live, you'll find notes that we put out for Lakeside for this weekend. So you can follow along with that if you like, or you can just listen. All right, Daniel chapter 1. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Let's stop there. Background of this story is this happens about 600 years before Christ was born. So six centuries before Christ came, this is all happening, and it's kind of a disturbing story if you're a follower of Christ, because what you, what you realize is the people of God are under siege from an outside attacking army, and the outside army wins. And all the best and the brightest people of God's people in Judah and Jerusalem, they get taken off to captivity in Babylon, There they're required to serve the king of Babylon. And you're like, whoa, whoa, God time out. You're supposed to be this unshakable God, and now you're leading your people right into disaster. How is that possibly true of you? And so it's kind of a disturbing beginning. He goes in, the king Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon goes in, and he uh, robs the temple. He takes all the temple goods to his own temple, sets it up before his own God. And then verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So, not only has the king come in <clears throat> to the temple and taken off a bunch of the, the gold stuff from the temple, but now he's captured some of the best and brightest young people of Babylon. These are the people that Folsom would be proud of. You know, they're on the, they're on the college prep track, right? They're, they're like, they're the guys who play on the Folsom High School football team. Winners, champions, strong, handsome, smart, because all football players are smart, and at least in Folsom they are. You know, these are the guys we would be proud of. These are the ones we're sending off to college. This would be like someone from another country around us comes in and invades our country and says, let's take every undergrad from Stanford into our captivity. That's who they took. So there's several people, several young people from Jude, from Judah, from Jerusalem, who are now captives of the king of Babylon. And the king sets up a structure. He goes, you're going to go to college. It's going to be a three-year program. You're going to learn everything we can teach you about political science in our world. 
You're going to learn how to serve in my court. You're going to learn the ins and outs and the intrigue of the palace, the, of the, of the um, government, all the stuff that runs our government. We're going to teach you all that stuff. We're going to give you a certain diet. We're going to give you enough food. We're going to give you enough wine, the right kind of food that's going to make you healthy and strong and wise. And then you go through this three-year course. When you get done with your course, you're going to work for me as slaves, but you're going to work for me in the government. That's how he sets it up. And there are four teenagers among this crowd of people that have been taken captive to Babylon. Their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And those last three, you might know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Here's a spunky young dude. He goes to a court official, the leader of his program, and he goes, Hey, you, uh, you know, I'd like not to have to eat your food. We have this kosher thing we do in Israel, and I'd like to not to eat your food. And uh, I'd like to, not to drink your wine. I'd like to just do it my own way. And the official's like, no, you can't do that because when the king comes and checks you guys out, you're going to be sickly and everyone else is going to be strong and my head's going to roll if the king finds out that I changed your program. Can't happen. Daniel says, no, no, no. You can check us out after 10 days. We'll be stronger. We'll be better off. We'll be more fit than everybody who's eating your food. You just got to check it out. And they resolve. Daniel and his three buddies, they resolve not to defile themselves with the king's food. Here's the first step in how to build an unshakable life. I build an unshakable life through a holy commitment to my unshakable God. Daniel knew that in a shaky world, the only place it's solid is in an unshakable God. He knew it. He goes, the only way I'm going to survive in this captivity, the only way we're going to thrive in this place is if we hold on to our unshakable God. So I'm in. And he made a holy commitment to his God. His three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they made the same commitment. They're in. They were set apart in that culture because they chose to be set apart. It's interesting, the word set apart means holy, or the idea of holiness means to set yourself apart from something, for someone. See, I believe you look at your, you look at your life, you go, man, my life is shaky, my world is shaky, whether it's, the, whether it's the headline world or whether it's your private world. If you look at your world and you go, it's shaky, then I think God is calling you to make a holy commitment to him. Some of you may have made resolutions at the beginning of the year. It's like, oh, it's a new year, new resolutions. Here's a resolution that these four men made. We resolve not to defile ourselves with the king's stuff. We are so tempted to let ourselves be distracted by the king's stuff, the shiny stuff of this world. And God may be calling you today to say, I need to make a commitment to this holy God. I need to make a commitment to be holy for him, to be set apart for him. Daniel and his buddies made that commitment. Verse 18, let's jump down a little ways. 
Verse 18 says, at the, time, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. These guys are living an unshakable life. They're not in their country, but they're rising through the ranks. And even the king recognizes that these four men are better times ten than anybody else in his court. Everything looks good for these guys, even though they're not in their own place. Now, I want to skip over chapter two because that tells a story of Daniel. I want to tell a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is found in chapter three. So flip over there. Let's read verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high, that's 90 feet high, and 6 cubits wide, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. My daughter's been out of high school for a while now, but when she was in high school, she came home very frustrated one day. She was taking uh, one of the English classes that was required, and she had to take, you know, she had to do the reading that's required, and I found out uh, through her that sh- they were still assigning the same stories that I had to read when I was in high school, and they were still s- assigning the same reads to her. So she comes home really frustrated one day because she's, she's been assigned to read Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. How many of you fake read that when you were in high school? She comes home, she goes, she's all frustrated. She goes, Dad, did you know that they paid Charles Dickens to write by the word I'm like, that explains the romantic period. All those extra words, because he got paid by the word. I'm pretty sure they paid Daniel to write by the word. And that's why you got satraps, prefects, governors, and all. I'm just going to call those leaders when we get to those places. Okay? Is that all right? So let's see. Let me pick it up from there. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, which is an orchestra, when you hear all that music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the orchestra and all the music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar is somewhat of an egotist. Yeah, a little. He sets up this statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, out in the plain on the edge of the city of Babylon. You can see it from the city. Everybody around can see this statue out there. And it's not completely unusual in, the, in human history. There's been a lot of rulers who have set up statues in honor of themselves or whatever. We don't know if this statue was a, an image of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it could have been. Uh, there was a successor to Nebuchadnezzar who came about 2,500 years later whose name was Saddam Hussein. He, he put all kinds of statues in the same spot. They would look just like him. 
It's kind of a thing with them. And so he's got this statue. Maybe it was a, a statue of him. Maybe, uh, maybe it was a statue of his god. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar worshipped the god Marduk. And uh, that was a god that he thought he could manipulate, like we talked about last weekend. He thought, well, you know, he's gold and stuff. He, he's not going to talk back to me when I talk to him and tell him what I want. So he thought he could manipulate his god Marduk. Maybe it was a statue of him. Not sure. People were still putting statues up today. I saw in China recently somebody put up a big uh, statue of Mao Zedong. And it's gold, and that thing is 120 feet tall. And the current president of China said, we don't like that anymore, so take that down. Cost some dude a lot of money to put that up and take it down. But people do that. They put something up. But but Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit different because he got everybody from his nation, exiles and and natives. He brings them all into into this plane, and he says, look, when you hear the band playing, y'all got to bow down and worship my statue. Verse 8, at this time, some astrologers came forward. Astrologers, by the, word, by the way, is the idea of magi. You've heard of magi someplace in your spiritual journey? That Those are the guys who visited Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Magi from the east came, people like this. So some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever.'" Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the orchestra and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. This paragraph is also titled, How to Tick Off Your King. So the Magi come in there, the, the, the astrologers come in, they're like, hey king, you said everybody's got to bow down to the statue, but there's some people that you put over us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in charge of these guys, most likely. There's some guys who you put in charge of things here, and they don't do what you want. In fact, they didn't eat the food during the training. Did you know that? Now they won't bow to your, to your statue you got to do something about them, your majesty. Verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the orchestra and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The king is furious with rage. Isn't furious enough? He's furious with rage. You ever been furious? I'm trying to think back in my life. I've been angry. I'm pretty good at getting angry. Furious is like big, and he's furious with rage. He's so mad at these three guys because they won't bow down to the statue that he set up. He is not used to defiance. And he comes in, he goes, "I, I heard that you won't bow down to my statue. He goes, all right, 
I value you. You guys, are, you guys are like 10 times better than anybody else I have, so I value you a lot. I'll tell you what, do-over. I'm going to give you a do-over. And we're going we're to strike up the band again, and when the band plays and you decide to bow and worship my statue, then all is forgiven, no problem. But if you don't bow, we're all going to throw you in the furnace. And then the king of a pagan country demonstrates for us that he has an understanding of what it takes to build an unshakable life. Because he says this, then what kind of God would be able to deliver you out of my hand? Here's a king who only believed in shakable gods. He only believed in the kinds of gods that you could, manip- you could manipulate. He only believed in gods that were strong but had flaws, strong but had weaknesses. That's the only kind of God he believed in. And so he said, look, there's not a God who can save you from my hand. But he declares for them the structure of an unshakable life. An unshakable life is founded only on an unshakable God. And a pagan king understood that. Though he didn't believe in any unshakable gods, he knew that was the only foundation of an unshakable life. So he's trying to shake these guys up. What God will be able to rescue you? Now, here's the crux of the story. Listen to the response of an unshakable life. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There is the response of an unshakable life. These three men are respectful, which is an attribute of an unshakable life. They are respectful to the king of the nation in which they live. They are not of that nation. They don't belong to that nation, but they're respectful of the king who rules there because that's an aspect of an unshakable life. It grieves me when I hear Christ followers who are disrespectful to the rulers in our nation. Romans 13 calls us to, be, to give respect to those to whom respect is due. And it's in the context of government leaders. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they got that. Their unshakable life expressed itself through respect to their leaders. They were respectful. They were fearless. They said, O king, your majesty, we do not need to defend ourselves in regard to this. They're fearless. The the trademark, the hallmark of a shakable life, of a shaky life is fear. We are surrounded by fear today. They said, we don't need to defend ourselves in regard to this, your majesty. They were fearless before him. You do what you're going to do, but they were fearless before him they were realists an unshakable life is lived by realists someone who looks at the situation and says here's the reality of the situation they said if we are thrown into the blazing furnace they said that's a real possibility this might be the last day of our lives 
That's highly possible. They were realists. But they were also confident in their God. The word confident, I love this. The word confident means literally with faith. If you are confident, you are with faith. And here are these three men. They lived confidently even before the king. Even when their last breaths were about to be taken, they lived confidently before the king with faith. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. That's an interesting way to say it. The God we serve is able to deliver us. They said, he might not. We believe he will, but he might not. But he is able. That's what we believe. See, faith is only ever based on what God has said. If God hasn't said it, you can't believe him for it. If God didn't make a command about it or a promise about it or a declaration about it, you can't believe God for it because you don't know if it's true. They didn't know if God would save them. They said God is able to save them. And that was absolutely true. That was the foundation of their faith. God is able. We get distracted in our faith journey sometimes because we expect to do, we expect God to do something he never promised to do. And then we get disappointed in God when it doesn't happen. So now we've got a shaky environment. Now we believe in this shaky God because we're trusting him to do things that he never promised or never commanded or never declared. I have a friend who bought a couple of houses years ago uh, as rental properties. He's going to buy these houses and then rent them out to others. He told me his plan. It was his, kind of his retirement plan, and it was all laid out. And he said, then I'm trusting God for it. It's going to be fantastic. And then the real estate market tanked, and he lost both houses. He became bitter at God because he said, I, I, I trusted God, and God didn't come through. I, I told him, I'm like, I, I just can't find it in the Bible where God said, go rent two houses. Go buy two houses and rent them out. You're making decisions about the future. There, there might be a good decision. It might not be. But don't blame God if it didn't work out. He never said you should do that. You can't trust God for what he hasn't promised. You can't trust God for what he hasn't commanded. But what God has told you, you can trust him for those things. He is rock solid. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, look, we don't know what our God's going to do. We believe he'll save us, but he may not. But it doesn't matter one way or the other. We believe he is able to save us, and that was the foundation of their faith. Our God is absolutely trustworthy in everything he has promised. He's absolutely trustworthy in everything he has commanded. That's where we stake our faith. In fact, that's the next principle I would say is, is a foundation of, or the structure of how to build an unshakable life. I build an unshakable life on a faith-filled confidence in God. Know your God. Don't depend on me to know your God for you. I am knowing God in my life. I'm walking in the process of knowing God in my life. And I want to tell you who God is. But you have to know him. You will never be confident in him if you don't know him. That process comes by spending time with him. In prayer, in scripture, in church, learning together who he is. I build an unshakable life on, on faith-filled confidence in my God. And the third piece to it is this. I build an unshakable life 
through a love-fueled connection with my unshakable God. Remember the great commandment? Remember a lawyer came to Jesus one day and he said, hey, what's the great commandment? Give me the, you know, give me the number one. Like, there's a lot of things to obey, but give me the number one. Remember what did Jesus say is the great commandment? Oh, thank you. Everybody else was Charlie Brown. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, thank you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love God. What did these three guys do? They love God above everything else. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. Do you know why Jesus was able to come to earth and go to the cross for us? was because he loved us perfectly, and perfect love casts out fear. And if you look at the life that you're living, you go, man, I'm fearful all the time. I'm, I'm afraid all the time. Remember this, perfect love casts out fear. Now, I don't know that any of us love perfectly besides Jesus. But are you moving that direction? An unshakable life is built on a love-fueled connection with your unshakable God. Three pieces to the structure, three parts to building an unshakable life. A commitment to holiness, a confidence of faith, and a connection through love with our God. That's what these three young men had. And it changed everything for them. These were the best and brightest people that Israel had to offer. Probably smarter than me. Probably more handsome than me. Certainly taller. (laughs) And they could take advantage of all those things if they wanted, but none of those things are the things on which they built their unshakable life. They built their unshakable life on holiness and faith and love. And all of those pieces are absolutely available to you. Want to hear how it turns out? Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, hey, Ian, somebody back there leaning on a light switch. Now I have to start over because I don't know where I was. (laughs) Verse 21, so these men, it's always, you guys are fun. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the government leaders crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own unshakable god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. A little bit of overreaction by the king, again. (laughs) But isn't it interesting that when these three guys lived out their holy, faith-filled, loving connection to God, that even the pagan king saw the light and saw a difference in their God? You choose. What is, God, what is God calling you to address in your life today? Is it your commitment to holiness that you need to address? Is it your confidence in faith that you need to address? Is it your connection of love with your God that you need to address? You decide. When you make a decision like these three men made, you begin to build a life that is unshakable. Jesus, I pray for us today. I'm so grateful to you and who you are and uh, what you've done for us. I'm grateful that you showed us what it's like to live without fear. You showed us what it's like to live an unshakable life. And you loved us perfectly. Lord, would you work, would you work in us today? I know that there are people among us today who are living in a shaky spot, not just because of the big picture things that come up in the headlines, but because of the smaller picture things that come up in their own lives. There are marriages that are in distress. There are families that are in distress. Health may be in distress. There's a lot of things that could bring shakiness into our world. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would build a life, that we would learn to build a life that is unshakable. And Lord, I look to you to lead us in that journey. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.